Hey, Melissa Job here, and I am so excited to tell you that Intimate Fame is now a part of Apollo Plus, the creator-owned platform where every subscriber helps audio fiction creators just like us. When you subscribe to Apollo Plus, you can listen ad-free, you get early access to episodes, exclusive content, behind-the-scenes supercuts, and so much more. But best of all, your support benefits us and our fellow creators with a 70% revenue share, so we can keep on creating all the audio content that you love. Join Apollo Plus now through the Apollo Podcasts app or by going to apollopods.com. Welcome to Intimate Fame conversations with the famous and infamous like you have never heard. Success, love, history alive, history undressed, private lives intimately revealed. What if you were there? Now you are invited. Meet extraordinary people as you never have before. One person's stories like no conversation you have ever been part of. Episode 2. She won a king's heart in the 40-year romance known around the world as the love story of the 20th century. In December 1936, King Edward VIII abdicated his throne for the twice-divorced American Wallace Simpson. Despite being vilified by the royal family and branded as an adventurous and the king's whore, she became an unlikely but potent global symbol of female empowerment and a worldwide social icon. But even with all that has been written about her, Wallace remained an enigma until now. The public disgrace of disease, removing our gloves, embracing people, touching them, not only listening but hearing. Diana and I understood it wasn't politics or protocol, it was personal. Diana, like me, we were at complete odds with the royal family. They did what they could to minimize our work, a tactical marginalization of all our efforts to make us opaque. They failed miserably. Neither Diana nor myself cared about their efforts. The royal family completely miscalculated. I knew, Diana knew, we could change things. They failed to comprehend by mere association with the monarchy we were famous. We were two smart gals that knew being famous offered power. Power that could change people's lives for the better. It was a family creed orchestrated by the Queen, ostriching, ignoring a potentially dangerous situation until it became explosive. David's funeral and then mine were spectacular public relations failures. And then Diana. Not only did they not learn, never pull their royal necks out of the sand, they never for a moment saw the epic failure to understand the people's grief. Diana and I were not alone. That family cast a wide net. The Duchess of York, Sarah Ferguson, knew all too well the precision-like persecution we all faced. We were defiant. The Duchess of York once wrote of me. I thought quite a bit about the most famous female outcast of them all, the one who had led a king to abdicate and ultimately brought Elizabeth to the throne. In the winter, there were yellow roses strangely growing in my garden in Sunnyhill defying the cold. 
I picked a bunch and took them to Frogmore, the royal mausoleum. And I laid those stubborn flowers at the sparsely kept grave of Mrs. Wallace Warfield Simpson, another woman who could never fit in. What a lovely evening this is turning out to be, to see you all again. There is so much to tell. Charles Darling, please have the staff freshly fill everyone's cocktail to the brim. We are just getting started. My dears, you don't know the half of it. I wanted to be on my own. I had nothing of my own. One morning after Wynne had left for work, I left. I took refuge at my mother's. I mentioned divorce. It was beyond discussion. No one in either family had been divorced, and this would not be an option. And under no circumstances was I to let anyone in the family know my thoughts. I returned to Wynne. We tried, briefly. Disaster. I decided to face the consequences of my family. Uncle Saul said if I divorced, there would never again be even a penny. My dear Aunt Bessie reminded me of what destitute truly meant. Not a single member of my two families supported me. Better to be beaten and bloodied than blot the family reputation. Fate intervened and I was saved, temporarily. Rescue China. Win was sent to Hong Kong. I could breathe and live off his $225 a month he sent. My Pensacola savior, Henry Mustin, died. After mourning, his wife Corinne and I made a trip here to Paris. My first. I knew immediately I would return. Letters from Wynne awaited me. Make amends, fix things, drinking stopped, pleading I come. I was out of money. Paris is expensive. I gave in. I boarded the USS Chamon with a few other Navy wives. Having all lost our minds for certain, we sailed for China. I knew nothing of China. It was in that direction. The USS Chamal was the original slow boat to China. Six weeks on that damn boat. Six weeks! My God, did you know the places you can go today in six weeks? Apparently to the moon and back, several times. I could not have arrived at a worse moment. Civil war had broken out. Ruled by the Crown, they hated the British. Americans fared no better. Wind seemed better, and I was glad I had come for a month or so. And then it all began again. Empty bottles. Hidden bottles. Physical abuse. I knew I would lose everything I already had. I told Wynne I wanted a divorce. Not the best decision. What was private became public. To humiliate me, he made me join him in the sing-song houses. The brothels, where I watched. And according to rumor years later, I happily participated and learned a few things. A clever trick known as the Chinese grip, where one uses part of one's anatomy. The Arendelle School for Girls would not have approved. I had come to China to save my marriage. I would leave China to save myself. Surprisingly, in the end, there was no scene 
The final unraveling was singularly without emotion. Not even the capacity for anger remained. That is what I wrote in my memoirs. Truth is, one day when he left, I packed my bags, left him a note, and got the hell out of there. How is everyone's cocktail? Charles, darling, I am dry. A friend was sailing to Shanghai. Yes, Shanghai. Oh, Shanghai. Well, you know all you need to know. I decided to go to Peking. There was a friend from Washington, a colonel in the Marines. I would need help with paperwork if not traveling under wind supervision. Peking. Finally, a true exotic city. Yes, there was typhoid and starvation everywhere. I still grappled with the concept of social order. Or better, I grappled with how no one grappled with the concept of social order. I only intended to stay long enough to work out my passage back to America, when one night at the Grand Hotel de Peking, I ran into my dear friend, my savior from San Diego, Catherine Bigelow. Our friendship picked up right where it had left off. The only difference being Catherine was no longer a widow. She had remarried, and she had remarried very well. Herman Rogers had grown up in great wealth, his father, a close friend and neighbor of Franklin D. Roosevelt. Herman retired young, and he and Catherine devoted their lives to world adventures. Hmm. Some gals have all the luck. I was happy for her. Trust me, I am not happy for many people. Catherine deserved it. They invited me to stay in Peking. I did. I stayed for a year. I spent an entire year in China, and I learned how to say one thing. Chang'ai da bar, Shangping di gaiwa. Dear boy, pass me the champagne. <laughs> but it had been a year. A year is a long time to hide. Passage was arranged, and I sailed for America. I arrived in Seattle with an intestinal blockage requiring emergency surgery. Kicked and punched around enough, crap happens. Hospitalized, I called Wynn. By this point, he was back in Washington. He made arrangements for me to travel to Chicago, where he met me and escorted me on the train back to Washington. Rescued by the perfect gentleman, the man I had married, as he held a cab to take me back to my mother's, he gave me a sweet, warm embrace. The sweep-you-up-and-protect-you feeling that had first opened my eyes to what I thought love might be. I thanked Wynne and kissed him on the cheek. I climbed into the cab. It was to be the last time we ever saw one another. Divorce eventually came. I was introduced to Mr. and Mrs. Ernest Simpson while visiting my dear friend Mary Kirk in New York City. Ernest's father had a very successful shipping company with offices in New York and London. Ernest had left Harvard to work with his father in the New York office. His marriage was in shambles. I wasn't a homewrecker. He leaned on me for solace. After his divorce, he asked me to marry him, and I said no. Then Uncle Sol died. He left everything to charity except $15,000 to me, spitefully handed out in small allotments on the condition I never marry again. The Great Depression took it all, 
Ernest proposed again. I accepted. You're not surprised. We set up home. A cook, a butler, a housemaid, a Scottish parlor maid. As if I knew what the hell that was. And a chauffeur, Hughes. I would travel with Hughes to pick up Ernest daily from work. One day, we were suddenly stopped in front of St. James Palace. The royals coming and going interfered with everyone's life, and there we were, watching, waiting. A motor car passed, and I caught sight of a man-boy. It was extraordinary. I asked Hughes who this curious changeling was. He told me it was the Prince of Wales. That is how I actually first met my dear David. Sitting in traffic, a hostage to his parade. In the spring, I sailed for New York. My mother was dying, emaciated, clinging to life. My glorious mother reduced to rubble. On seeing me, she exclaimed, Oh, Wallace, why did they bring you so far? Have you come to see me die? She gave me a less than stellar review of the fashion ensemble I had chosen for the occasion. She fell into a coma and died, 59 years old. Her death, an undisclosed cause. I'm no physician, but penniless and beaten down might sure as hell be an undisclosed cause. Did you know I invented the cocktail hour? It's true. London knew nothing of the concept, and my cocktail parties became known. First Ernest's business associates, then finally the people cocktail parties were meant for. Writers, artists, actors, politicians. All of us crazy people who are fun when we drink. A long-time friend started to come around, Benjamin Thor. Benjamin Thor was true money, true society. All right, this gets a little complicated, so hold on to your cocktails and pay attention. Here we go. Benjamin Thor was the first secretary of the U.S. Embassy in London. His wife, Consuelo Morgan, was one of three daughters, all famous, looks, money, everything to envy. The mother made it her mission that all three of her girls would be well-wed, which she did. I knew Benjamin's brother Bill from San Diego, where he dated Catherine Bigelow before she married Herman Rogers, who together became my China saviors. I also knew of, though I had not met, Consuelo's twin sisters, Thelma and Gloria, better known as Thelma Finesse and Gloria Vanderbilt. Gloria's daughter, Little Gloria, was the subject of a world-obsessed child custody battle over her trust fund, the trial of the century. Frightful evidence claiming that Gloria, the mother, was in fact a lesbian? She was. And therefore an unfit parent? She was not. Thelma, after a failed marriage to James Vale Converse, married Lord Vicomte Furness. Well, this was an odd match with both Lord and Lady Furness indulging in various affairs. He with a series of beautiful French women, and Thelma with Edward, Prince of Wales. Thelma and Prince Edward were known to hook up at Benjamin Thaw's home. Charles, darling, I could use a cocktail. My dears, raise your glass if you're stranded and parched. Now, Thelma and I were distant friends, never close. A run-in here and there, a kiss on the cheek. Oh, dear Thelma. Thelma needed to travel back to New York. 
Gloria, the poor little rich girl, trial of the century, the lesbian issue. While in New York, Thelma wanted a dear prince to have a companion to count on. And she chose me. Thank you, Charles, darling. Everyone set? Fabulous. Another toast. Never explain, never complain. <laughs> I'm ahead of myself. I received a phone call. It was from Benjamin's wife, Consuelo. Her sister Thelma, Lady Finesse, had invited the Prince of Wales for the weekend at Borough Court. Given Thelma was still married, Benjamin and Consuelo were to act as chaperones. They were being called away and wanted, pleaded, that Ernest and I take their place. We were in the middle of the Great Depression. Ernest and I were not dead, but we were wounded. It was enticing to be invited. The prospect that one might survive by association. It is not the highest of goals, I know, but you do understand. One had to do what one could. And that, my dears, is how the course of history was changed. A series of parties. I befriended Thelma and her twin sister, Gloria Vanderbilt. On Thelma's trip to New York, she hooked up with the millionaire, Ale Khan. Gossip was back before she was, and Thelma was gone. The prince began to telephone daily. David was keen on us. He was keen on anything American. David would visit our flat, chatting late into the night. Ernest would become exhausted and excuse himself for bed. The prince was very gentlemanly. For the man everyone wanted, he seemed lonely, desperate for companionship and conversation. He was so young at heart. Ernest and I called him Peter Pan. There was nothing untoward about the visits. We always called him Sir. You must know this. Before our marriage, it was completely proper. Few believed us on this, but it is true. Ernest and the Prince were, if not friends, amiable. He was the Prince of Wales, visiting in our home. You are not going to throw him out. And Ernest knew of the Prince's fascination of me, but that is all we ever thought of it. A fascination. David loved the country. For David, home was Fort Belvedere. His father thought he was a fool, a very old place for a modern man. David loved it. I found it one of the most beautiful homes I had ever seen. I felt like Wallace in Wonderland on my visits to the fort. Balmoral was divine, but Balmoral was not the fort. It was not David. There was a dinner for the Duke and Duchess of York. David's brother Bertie and his wife Elizabeth. She was deadly clear as she passed me. I am here to have dinner with the king. The sister-in-law had put up with Thelma, but not this American. She believed that by David bringing me to Balmoral, I had damaged the prestige of the monarchy. I could give a fuck what she thought about what I might damage. What hurt the most was I knew that night it was the beginning of the end between the two brothers. The visit stopped. The royals knew of David's fascination. And what set them off on me? David was a playboy. It was simply another one of the prince's affairs. They would turn a blind eye. Let me tell you why. They saw long before me the prince had fallen in love. 
Trips with David began. Cannes, Vienna, Budapest. David always invited Ernest, but more and more my husband declined. Work in New York would take him away. So what was I to do, refuse an invitation from the future king? And I was beginning to have the feeling that more than work was taking Ernest to America. It was Mary Kirk, the very woman who had introduced me to Ernest. She came on holiday to London and stayed with us, all very proper and nice. After she left, she mailed a letter to me thanking me for my graciousness and hospitality. And she mailed a letter to Ernest, an intense love letter about how she could no longer go on living without him. <laughs> Trouble was the poor girl put the two letters in the wrong envelopes, and I got the love letter and Ernest the thank you note. Ha! <laughs> oh, poor Mary. Mary, Mary, Mary. Queen Mary. David's father, King George, fell into a coma. Rather than extend his misery, Queen Mary chose to end his life with an injection of morphine and cocaine. The Queen asked that he die before midnight, so it would appear in all the quality papers first. King George was pronounced dead at 11.55 p.m. Five minutes to spare. How's that for family planning? David was king. I knew things would be different. I had no idea and was woefully unprepared for the form of malice toward us, David in particular. David wasn't included in the will. He literally exclaimed, where do I come in? The king believed that David had more than enough. On paper, David looked quite good. Estates, property, there were the crown jewels in that damn tower. Cash was the problem. But king he was, 41, and still looking like an innocent young man. But he had something money cannot buy. Edward VIII was beloved by his people. There was little left of Peter Pan. The facts were brutally clear. David needed to marry and produce an heir. This was devastating to me. It wasn't that I believed I would lose a lover. I would lose my dearest friend. Balancing the affair, the king show, David suggested I come here, Paris. The Hotel Maurice. Worst goddamn decision of my life. While I was gone, over prime rib and cocktails, David told Ernest he planned to marry me. David would not be crowned king without me by his side. Ernest, given Mary Kirk was in the picture, came to an agreement with the king. Ernest would agree to a divorce. David would agree to take care of me. I had no intention of divorcing Ernest, and I never intended to marry David. My affair with the Prince of Wales was simply that an infatuation that opened what would have been closed doors. I am sure one or two of you has wanted to open a closed door. I assumed he would tire of me or give in to the need to leave me for England's sake. And yet here were two men, two men I did indeed love and care for, deciding my fate. David calculated it. Ernest and I were divorced. Six months would be needed before we could marry, free come April. 
David planned his coronation for May, enough time to marry. I was to be his queen. I offered to leave him. David would have none of it. I was sure we would only create disaster together. All right, my dears, let's have another toast. To the people of England, they do not mind fornication, but they loathe adultery. A friend, Esmond Harmsworth, invited me to lunch at Claridge's. He proposed a morganatic marriage, meaning David and I could be married, but I would not become queen. I told David of the proposal. David called upon the Prime Minister and asked about such a solution. Worst goddamn decision of David's life. Up to this point, David could do as he wished. By asking the Prime Minister to consult, it officially made David tied to the government's opinion. If he ignored their opinion, the government could resign. David uttered abdication. Letters arrived. They blamed me. Some threatened to murder me. One letter arrived simply addressed, King Edward's whore. It reached such a furor that David called and insisted I come to the fort. By evening, I was at Belvedere. Press was killing us. It was decided, quickly and quietly, sent off to France, again. I climbed into the car, shaking. David appeared at my window. Kissing my cheek and holding my hands, he told me, I don't know how it's all going to end. You must wait for me, no matter how long it takes. I shall never give you up. David sent me to France with 100,000 pounds. 100,000 pounds makes one wonder if it is not compensation for never seeing one again. Out of nowhere, David called. The instrument of abdication was prepared. There was nothing to be done. I should have stayed at the fort. I alone could have convinced him to leave me. Instead, I, who had sought no place in history, would now be assured one, an appalling one carved out by blind prejudice. Six months I waited in exile. The abdication complete, David came to France and we were married. We signed papers keeping property separate. That came as a surprise to the royals. Not quite the adventurous, they thought. The newly crowned king and queen had no interest in the future. They hated David for what he did. The world had become modern. David wanted to be a modern king. It took only weeks before he was a pariah, not to be mentioned or remembered. Dead. Worse than dead, to never have existed. A year after the abdication, Queen Mary was asked when her eldest son would return to England. Not until he comes to my funeral. I need a drink. Cocktail. How is everyone? Enjoying yourselves? My dears, you might want to have them pour you a stiff one. Let's talk Hitler. This is Scott Edward Smith, the creator of Intimate Fame. Thank you for listening and join us next time for Episode 3 of That Woman, Wallace Simpson, Duchess of Windsor. Intimate Fame, created by Scott Edward Smith, produced by Howard Gloss. That Woman, Written by Scott Edward Smith, performed by Melissa Joe, 
Sound design and original music by Chesney Hawks. Associate producer, Melissa Job. Original stage production performed at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. Performed by Melissa Job. Directed by Philip William McKinley. Produced by Howard Gluss and Sharon Morrill.